And a tip of the hat to our sponsors, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists in buying, selling and managing properties in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.com. Action. Welcome to another episode in this brilliant series to celebrate the life, work and theories of the late Clayton Christensen. We are joined today by a guest who has done immense research, not into the what, which Clay covered, and we've covered so far on this series, the what is the strategy, it's the theories, it's the how do you put disruptive technologies into place. Today we're going to cover the who. Who are those people who implement disruptive technologies? Who are the people who are brave enough to go ahead and disrupt their own businesses? sometimes cannibalize their own businesses? What are the traits and characteristics and personalities of those people? Today's book is built on the DNA of those people. It is a great pleasure and he has flown across the pond <laughs> to join us today. The author, along with Clay and along with Jeff Dyer, of The Innovator's DNA, Hal Gregerson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's good to be here. It's so great to have Hal with us. He has absolutely gone above and beyond the extra mile, as I said, <laughs> literally, <laughs> to, to join us here in Dublin's St. Stephen's Green in the iconic offices. Mm. It's great to have you here, man. Thank you for the massive effort you made. It is an effort well worth making. Um, it, anything that could help support Clay's idea and honor Clay's life is worth that kind of effort. And we had a great opportunity to grab a, a cup of herbal tea here before and have a chat. And you let me in some beautiful stories about Clay. I thought mm. before we go into those five major traits that you covered in this book, and, and I'd love to you to tell us the origins of the book as well. Mm -hmm. But even before that, something you said that was so interesting about Clay and maybe I'll use this as a way for you to tell us about your relationship with him, was his doggedness with finding the right question. And you told me about him as a student doing his MBA about how somebody else would ask a question and he'd become curious and he'd collect the questions that he didn't think of. I thought that was a fascinating insight into the man. No, it's an, to me, it was an amazing story. So Clay and I were doing some work together around how do you ask better questions as a leader? And in the context of that, he shared this story where he's getting his MBA, I think, in 1977. Imagine that first year, first semester, you're comparing yourselves to the people around you. And he's sitting there listening to folks who have read the same case studies he read, but they came up with questions or insights that, like, he did not get at all. And so he's sitting there thinking, first... That's a good question they just asked. Or second, that's a great insight. What question were they asking to get to that insight? And so he would literally notice them, write them down. And then as he was preparing the case studies for the next day, he would remember to use those questions on the new data to figure out if he could get some new insights. And over the course of two years, he had a long list of questions, some of which he dropped off the list because they weren't proving valuable. But this is the way in which Clay approached most of his efforts in life. It may have looked like he was just this kind, gentle giant, but underneath that kind, gentle giantness, he was deeply disciplined about trying to figure out ways to ask the better question. And for those who had the chance to interact directly with Clay, and you sort of get a sense of this when you're reading his books, he so often posed questions other people didn't. But it didn't come like some, you know, divine DNA gift when he was born, though there may have been a little inkling of that. But it's more, he just worked hard. He showed up day after day, for example, through that MBA program, trying to refine this questioning muscle or skill. One of the insights you let me in on was how you and Clay collaborated on this book along with Jeff Dyer. Mm -hmm. I'd love you to share that story because you had a relationship with Clay where he would ask a question you hadn't thought of and, you, and he'd send you in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons you sought him out as a collaborator on this book. Well, my background is, is organizational behavior, but primarily at the individual psychology level. 
So I'm always trying to figure out why does Aiden do what Aiden does? You know, what's driving Aiden to do that? And it's largely an internal story is the way in which I'd approach the world. But with Clay, I'll never forget one day when I was taking that perspective on these innovators we were studying. And Clay looked at me and he said, look, Hal, sit in this chair just for a minute. So he put me in a chair in the middle of the room. And he's like, here's how I think about it. I never asked the question, what were they doing in order to have this consequence? He said, I asked the question, what are all the forces acting upon this person that would cause them to do whatever they just did? And in the case of managers, be it lower level manager, senior level manager, it's again, what are those forces? How do they think about them? How do they feel about them? And how do they respond to them? So instead of this inside out only viewpoint, with Clay, it was absolutely an outside in viewpoint. And part of that, I think, related to his deep generosity with everyone in the world. In other words, he would never want to corner you, Aiden. He puts you in a corner like, because Aiden did this, that thing happened. But it was more because Aiden was in these contexts or these conditions, that happened. So let's change those conditions and contexts so that Aiden or Hal is more likely to do the things we would like to have done. I'd love you to share maybe some your own relationship with, with Clay before we dive into the conditions and the, the lenses and the, the traits of those the, the, of the innovators. Maybe you'll share your own relationship with him because you had a very close relationship. Well, I, I honor and treasure that friendship and relationship. And you know, I knew Clay from a distance in the mid-1990s. And for a variety of reasons, we happened to cross paths. He came to give a speech at the school I was teaching at, and we, I had the chance to interview him. So he comes into my office with his massive, taller than Hal <laughs> Gregerson frame, and Aiden frame. And it, it can be overwhelming at one level, but it never really was. He sits down, and we have this conversation that as I look back now, the first conversation was held elements every conversation thereafter. And the first element would be, how are you doing? With good, good deafening silence after the question. It's like, this is not a trivial question. I really want to know, how are you doing? And then we'd have a conversation about it. And part of what Clay was getting at, I think, was what are you wrestling with? What's troubling you? What challenges are you facing? And that leads to the second question that, again, was always there in any conversation. At some point, the challenge would surface, maybe an intellectual challenge, maybe a personal challenge. But whatever it was, it would be, given that, Clay would ask, how can I help? And then deafening silence again. It wasn't a toss-out-there question, but it was a I-mean-it question. And then we'd have a discussion about, well, what might that look like and how could that go? And that first conversation, I remember, we, we talked even then in the mid-1990s about how do you formulate the better question? Because the reason we get stuck is we're asking the wrong question. And he knew that. He learned that earlier than I did. It was just like crystal clear to him. And, and so as we explored that territory, I would use the words, there was this sacred dimension to the conversation. And you didn't have to be the same faith as Clay to experience that sacredness. But his pursuit of truth, not necessarily with a capital T, though it might have been, but it wasn't, didn't have to be that way. His pursuit of what truths were operating in the situation that caused people to do what they were doing, it was just, it was dogged, but in a good way, a generous way. And so asking, how are you doing and what's your challenge and how can I help? 
those were not just means by which Clay could get to something that he wanted. It was the means by which he helped you make progress and he got an insight somehow through that process. Isn't it fascinating how rare that is for someone to ask how you are and actually want to know and actually wonder, can they do anything about that? And I think that's one of the things from all the interviews and all the research I've done, and you get let me into insights into Clay's funeral that happened during COVID. Mm-hmm. People flew from all over the world, you were telling me. People who didn't even know him on a personal level. Well, so this is during COVID, and, and I'll never forget standing in line to go into the space where the funeral was being held. And the person behind me I'd never met, we said hello to each other. And then she went on to explain that she had flown halfway around the world had never personally met Clay, had read his work and been deeply, not just intellectually, but personally influenced by it. And she wanted to honor who this person was. And there were more than a thousand people there that had made those kinds of commitments, but who had been influenced either directly or indirectly in that very human way by Clay. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, we're here in Dublin and I, I, I just came up from London visiting with some executives at Chanel, where almost a decade ago now, Clay had done some initial work with the senior leaders of Chanel, and then they actually were curious about the innovators' DNA work and asked me to follow on with Clay's innovators' dilemma work. Well, I met one of these leaders yesterday at the Chanel offices who had met Clay in that original set of conversations he had had with them. And the word she kept using over and over was generous, 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 humble, humble, humble. He had every reason to not be generous. He had every reason to not be humble. But every engagement with the world for Clay was, I think, a search for some new piece of truth. And so when he'd come into that space, either in a company level or an individual level, it's like, You know, what's working? What's not working? Which sound like simple questions, but to get to honest answers, very difficult. And so Clay's got this this matrix in his head of what's working? What's not working? Why? What's going on underneath it? How can we figure this out? But but that's just how he did it. And, And so even 10 years later, her reflections on Clay were just richly filled, not just with intellectual insight, which he delivered by the dozens of insights, but it was with this sense of the human beingness of Clay that went with those insights that made the insights longer lasting, more impactful, and I think deeper in terms of their import. It's interesting that we talk about psychological safety, for example, in organizations mm-hmm. and how you have to have the right conditions for creativity to ha- happen. Yeah. And I, I often thought, well, from my experience of, of interviewing for Clay, is that I imagined what it would have been like to either been an executive in a, an organization, you know, in one of his workshops or in, in his course in Harvard. And when you create the right environment, and, and I mean beyond the knowing it's okay to psychologically safe to ask a, a dumb question, mm. but actually the energetic feel of it, that it's actually, you know, I, I'm in alpha wave brain state. Yeah, yeah. And Clay invited that. Now, you know, we've both been at university. We've both been with professors teaching in classes. And frankly, most professors I had did not want us to challenge their theories. They did not want us to ask tough questions for which they would have to say, well, I actually don't know. But Clay would actively invite that. And again, literally, just yesterday with these executives at Chanel, another one had been in his MBA class, had been a student of his. And she was like, that's one of the things I remember about Clay was, unlike so many other professors, he really listened 
And he really wanted you to challenge his ideas. He really did. And, and, there's an, and when you operate in the world that way, you create conversations that you otherwise would never have. We had Paul Carlyle, a friend, friend of yours, on, mm -hmm. on the show recently. Mm -hmm. And he, we were talking about how theory building and how Clay actually built his theories and how you, you cycle up and down to seek an anomalies. Mm -hmm. And I thought about, because actually your book, the innovators DNA made me think about that the the importance of somebody asking the question, like you said about the story about Clay writing down the questions that he hadn't thought of. It exposed the idea of neurodiversity and the value the value of really what diversity is really about in an organization. It's about those people with different backgrounds, different education systems, and different viewpoints, different lenses. And the question they'll ask, could you go? I never thought of that. And, and why would you? Because mm -hmm. they're a different person with different experiences. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be a nice segue. And I'm going to show on the screen the, the figure of the, of the book about yeah. the five skills and how they come together. But I want to just caveat that they have changed in Hal's world when you lecture on this, that, that questions actually come first. And we're going to cover in the future, Hal's kind of agreed to cover questions out of the answer, which is his brilliant book as well that I'll show on the screen. Mm. And you've reversed the model in some way. So maybe we'll, we'll talk to that model. For me, I, I teach to learn and I learn to teach. And so it's, it's, it's this, it's this symbiotic relationship. And so, you know, you, you, you develop a, a figure for a book in the innovator's DNA about these five discovery skills that we discovered having interviewed 50 of some of the world's best disruptive innovators. Today in 2023, it's hard for us to remember that Nicholas Zenstrom inventing Skype did it in a time when long distance calls actually weren't free. <laughs> You paid by the minute kind of a thing, novel idea. But when you interview those sorts of folks, you realize they're actually using very specific skills. And if you shadowed them, like if I, if, 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 if I shadowed you, Aiden, for a day or two or a week and watched what you did, my hunch would be you would do exactly what Nicholas Enstrom did or Diane Green did at, at VMware or Jeff Bezos did at Amazon. You would engage these skills of questioning the status quo, challenging fundamental assumptions in order to build a better business model or a different approach. You, I would be able to see you out there actively observing and watching people, process, product use, customer journeys, fill in the blank, but it'd be actively watching to get surprised. I would see you going out of your way to network, not just for your career or for progression, but it's like, I'm networking, I'm talking with you to get a spark of a new idea, a new angle. Again, an element of surprise. Or I am experimenting and just trying stuff, small, fast, cheap, over and over, to get some data point that signals here might be a better way. And so those observing, networking, and experimenting skills their attempts to get surprised by the world. And if we think of our everyday engagement with the world as a leader or a manager or a technical professional, if we're never getting surprised, we are not using those skills. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, and that's anomalies. And, and they're, they're anomalies surfacing, exactly. It's like we, we are going, we, you know, in Clay's words, he put it, Actively seeking passive data. I love those four words. Instead of passively getting secondary data from some other source, direct reports, information systems, you know, IT systems and so on, it's taking the reverse of that, actively seeking passive data by creating the conditions where I can see anomalies, experience anomalies. Well, how do you do that? You actually Make observations that other people don't make. You talk to people other people don't talk to. You experiment and try things other people aren't doing. And that's how you get to the anomaly. And so the starting point here is I have some questions about the world. I'm trying to figure something out. And so 
in, 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 you know, at one level, we have these linear charts like you ha we have in the Innovators DNA book. The way in which I teach this now is you start with a question, it moves to got the question, get out there and observe, network and experiment. And as you do that, you'll end up with an associational thought, meaning you'll connect the unconnected, you'll combine things that weren't ever combined, it'll be novel and new and valuable. That feels linear, and it looks linear, and it makes it easy to teach. The reality is, it's, it's, and the reality is, questions of themselves do not deliver valuable new associational thoughts or answers. There's no direct relationship. So all I do is ask questions. I'm just annoying. <laughs> you know, it's like, I didn't think I feel. <laughs> so for me, it's like, don't be annoying, be responsible. To actively seek passive data by using these other discovery skills, being in those conditions where we, where we get anomaly surfacing to where we can actually get those connections, those associations other people don't get. Beautifully articulated, man. I, I love it. And and just what's lovely there is so the questions, the cue, and then one, observing, networking, mm -hmm. and experimenting, and then that leads to a, which is associational thinking. Yeah. You know, one of the the ways I think about it is you need to co collect dots in order to connect them. You need to have dots first in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the big challenges for organizations, leaders in organizations, is they're measured on an EQ as an execution quotient, not emotional mm -hmm. quotient. Mm -hmm. And rather, they're never, sometimes they're actively punished for DQ, discovery mm -hmm. quotient. That's a huge problem because I often think about this image of I work for an organization, I walk into the CEO's office, the CEO's got their feet up on a stool, she's looking out the window. Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, it's well for you. The rest mm -hmm. of us are off working there. Mm -hmm. That would be the reaction from people if they saw that happening. Mm -hmm. But the CEO should actually do that on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Not just the CEO. Many execs in an organization should take the time for ideas to associate, to marinate in their brain. But And, and, for, and also they need to collect them. Like the other thing is, uh, uh, you know, you see somebody in an organization reading a paper mm -hmm. or like... God forbid, read a book mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. company dime, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they should be. I Absolutely. just think that the, that learning element in organizations should be part of their, their, your daily grind. If you want to, it, it should be a joy, but mm -hmm. not having to sneak it in or not having to do it in your own time when you should be at home with your family or whatever you do. Mm -hmm. No, I would agree with you. So, so when, when, when I am working with companies, the first question I will ask them is, tell me how your CEO finds and solves problems or challenges. Just describe their process to me. How do they go about doing it? Because it's either an active process using my questioning skills, my observation, networking, experimenting, and associational thinking skills. They're active that way. Or it's a very passive process, which means they're likely largely sitting in their own office space, surrounded by, the, by a coterie of people to protect them from bad information, um, and relying upon secondary information from the world, from their direct reports, from you know, information reports, PowerPoints, fill in the blank, to be able to make decisions about the future of this company. So if I've got passive problem finder and solvers at the top, meaning they're relying on secondary data, I know from the get-go that anyone in that organization who uses these active skills to actually find and solve the real issues, they will not be rewarded and they will likely be punished. Because from the top down, they do not know what they don't know, which is the way in which they're finding and solving problems is actually keeping them from finding and solving the most fundamental, significant problems they should be looking at. That idea of actually going and seeking the problem, the problem in its infancy, or it's an embryonic problem, trying to get a, find it there rather than let it grow. Because th that idea of, uh, I've heard the term, mind guards, 
mm-hmm. guarding the CEO. Oh, he or she won't like that if you say that. Don't put it this way or leave it till next week. They've got enough on their plate. Mm-hmm. SEO should be actively looking for them. Let's call them anomalies. Mm-hmm. What's not working mm-hmm. is more important. It's I heard an old saying that it's like, give me, and this was the days before email was like, good news by mail, <laughs> bad news by phone. Uh-huh. <laughs> I need uh-huh. to know the bad news early so yeah. I can react yeah. to it. So Nandani Lakhani, one of the co-founders of Infosys and um, one of the CEOs at one point, he basically said, I want the bad news to take the elevator and the good news to take the stairs. You know, it's that notion of that's how he's trying to create that sort of world. And so what, what he's tr- basically trying to do is set up a context where anomalies can surface. Surprises can come their way. And the best leaders, the most disruptive innovators, they thrive on surprise. You know, if you think of Scott Cook, one of the, fa- the founder of Intuit, that's his, that's his way of looking at the world. He savors the surprise like you would a good meal. It's just like you're looking for that instead of trying to avoid it. So you've got, if you go back, it's now almost 30 years, Jeff Bezos is working in the finance industry. He notices that the internet in the mid-1990s is exploding in growth. Now, he's smart enough to realize that explosive or exponential growth has implications. It's going to affect things. And so he's thinking, what are the implications of that? Now, most entrepreneurs would be thinking literally short term. It's like, you know, how could I make some quick bucks on this incredible phenomenon at the moment? And I think, you know, Jeff, honestly, probably does think, how could I make some quick dollars if I think about it? But it's more, what's the long game here? You know, like if this grows and if it continues to grow at that rate, what are the implications of that? What could be done here? What could be sold in that kind of an environment? And then he does the observing, the networking, the experimenting work to figure out books might be a good start for that sort of an online sales business. Then they start doing that and it expands out beyond books. And then they start doing that well and it expands out to AWS and web services or fill in the blank. Every one of those expansions have been driven by a question about something that could could and should be different, a challenge, an opportunity, then backed up with this non-stop active engagement of these discovery skills, seeing, watching, talking, trying, observing, experimenting, et cetera. And then in the spirit of what you mentioned a few minutes ago, creating the space and time when you get that data that's anomaly and surprising to stop, step back, let it settle in. What does that mean now and in the future? How might we build something that's going to be way beyond the present. And so what I find with the associational thinking skill, two, two questions I often ask is, where do you get your best new ideas, your best associational thoughts? And that means, you know, it's basically you're combining things that otherwise wouldn't be combined. You're doing things, you're smashing things together in unique new ways. Selling books on the internet the way, you know, it's, it's a new combination kind of thing. When I ask folks that, most people have an idea. Well, it's in the shower, it's when I'm running, jogging, driving in the car, and that goes on and on. The answers come pretty fast. And then my question becomes, well, if you want to get more new ideas that are valuable, what should you do? It's like, duh, take more showers. (laughs) Fill in the blank. And they kind of get that. And then it's like, I'll ask, well, what about your team? How, where does your team get its best new ideas? With that question, it's usually a pregnant pause. It's quiet. Because most people don't do it. They don't, as a team, spend the energy trying to make associations that would be valuable for some challenge they care about. It links beautifully back to what you said about play, about creating that environment, but also... 
the brainwave energy space you're at. So the shower thing, one of the theories is it, it creates a brainwave state that you have these insights, mm-hmm. but it's because your brainwave slightly slightly slower in, in yeah. alpha versus beta is execution mode all the time. And I yeah. often think about that and kind of go, well, you cannot have associative thinking if you are executing all the time and you don't allow that to happen. You need to allow the ingredients to marinate and come together and infuse and become something totally different. Yeah. Yeah. How do you encourage that with the leaders you work with? Well, what's really interesting is, so we wrote the Innovator's DNA before I joined MIT. And when I went to MIT in 2014, I looked around quickly and realized this place actually operates like these most innovative companies in the world that we've been studying for the last 10 years. And then we studied the alumni who had been graduated from MIT and realized they don't even like the word leadership. The way they frame the world is, what's the challenge? What's the big, difficult, you know, engaging challenge that's worthy of our effort that we want to figure out here? Then, given that the challenge is bigger than me, it's going to take more than one person. And so it's like, Who else has the skill sets that would complement mine to be able to get this done? And then it's basically all those discovery skills in the innovator's DNA go to work. They ask tons of questions. They're deeply analytical. Where's the data? It's not just data, numerical data, but where's the data? Observe, get data. Network, get data. Experiment, get data. What is the data telling us? Then stop. What are the connections across these things? And so you've got some of the faculty, for example, at MIT who study literally fish in order to make better armor or fill in the blank. You know, it's that kind of associational thinking. But what we call it at MIT is challenge-driven or problem-led leadership. And so if I were to say, what's the starting point for being a disruptive innovator in the spirit of the innovator's DNA? It's like starting point is, what's your challenge? And so that again is, that's again, if I were engaging with you as an organization, it's for me, it's like, what's the biggest challenge your CEO cares about? How does, how do they actually go about solving it? And those things tell me everything about the innovative state of that organization. If the challenge the CEO cares about has a relatively short time horizon of two to three years, I know they will never make it on that innovative companies list. Because, you know, if you go into, again, I don't want to overuse Amazon, but they know substantive projects with big impacts will take six to eight years to happen. So that's the thing is like, we've got big challenges here. We start at the top. We have a longer time horizon for some of those challenges. And we use these active discovery skills to do something about them. So then it becomes, okay, if I'm in your organization, is it clear to the rest of the people what your senior leadership's challenges are? And often they're not clear because they don't even know what they are, but then it's the clarity. But then I go down to any level in the organization and it's the same story, Aiden. It's like, What, given my territory here, my domain, my group, maybe it's five people that I'm responsible for, and we're in this little piece in that bigger system, what is our biggest challenge that we all care about? And if we can't find one, we're not showing up with these discovery skills at work. No challenge, these skills will never get used. But if we define that challenge, then it's like, oh, okay, I need you and you and you and you, and we need, we need all these people to make this thing happen. And then we're going to use these skills. So it's like the starting point for this is what's my challenge? What's our challenge? Is it clear to us? Is it clear to our peers across the organization? Is it clear to our customers, our suppliers, our managers, our direct reports? And if there's lack of clarity about challenges, those discovery skills in the innovator's DNA will not get used. If we're not challenge-driven, we are not innovation-driven. 
the thing I got from that was that that the challenge or the question that you agree upon. Mm-hmm. So your team, you might brainstorm, what's our question? Yeah. Becomes the common, not only the common language, but the North Star towards what we're working at. So yeah. it, it literally gets people onto the same page working together. And it, it kind of exposes then some, the necessity for other skills like it needs vulnerability from a senior team to actually say, this is what I'm wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Or a startup. This, this is a lot of startup leaders or founders try to hide the bad news from the rest of the team that I don't want to worry them. But if you engage them, kind of go, you guys are part of the solution. I need you mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to work with me. It becomes a really important thing. And then that leads to what you were saying about, do they know as the elevator to use that one goes down the organization, do people know what the challenge are? And, and they should know. Mm-hmm. Yes, you don't want people who are, in execution mode in a manufacturing plant to be worrying about the challenges. Mm-hmm. But people who are in more cognitive roles, if you want to call them that, they need to know that. And then you need storytelling throughout the organization, which is a part of your skill set. Well, I would I would make one exception to what sure. you just said, is that even though these discovery skills are often associated with you know innovations that make big impacts, if I'm working in that manufacturing environment, trying to make sure that the widgets coming out come out well for the customer, there are always challenges even in the manufacturing environment, right? It's like things don't work according to plan. Plans just don't think, they don't work. And so it's like, okay, if I'm your supervisor on that production line, and if I never use these discovery skills of asking a question about your world, observing and watching how you do your work, talking to other people about your challenge so I can help you make progress on it, supporting you in making that experimentation to move your challenge forward, and taking the time to make associations and connections that could help us get a totally new angle on this, those widgets over time will become irrelevant. Or the process we're engaged in will become go off the rails. And so these skills actually have deep relevance to our everyday work as leaders. Put simply, if I don't use those discovery skills to understand your challenges, if you're my direct report, we are setting ourselves up for failure. Because the only way I can really know your challenges is by using those discovery skills in a vulnerable, honest, active, present way. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is the five whys, for example. So let's go into that manufacturing environment yeah. in Toyota. Yeah. And you, you mentioned in the book about Bezos again in Amazon actually asking, okay, so one of the, one of the fulfillment center people lost a finger. Mm-hmm. Why? Maybe you'll take us through the five whys for organization. Cause five whys is not just about the production line. In, in an organization, it can be used in any context. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it into it, <clears throat> you know, they, they are very innovative. They've been on the most innovative companies list. Scott Cook was one of the innovators we found, founding innovators that we interviewed for the Innovators DNA. And, um, you know, they were trying to push innovation time across the system, but people weren't doing it. And so they used the five whys to figure out why they weren't doing it. Why are they not using that 10% of their time that's dedicated to be gay, to get find and solve challenges better, innovatively. Well, they worked through the five whys and it finally came down to, unexpectedly, they simply weren't putting that time into their calendars. (laughs) So they literally wrote an algorithm to block it in in order to get them to start doing it and they saw an uptick in people actually doing valuable innovation work. So, so that kind of deep inquisitiveness can, can really make a difference. Reading the book, but also our conversation before we came on air, you were telling about Clay and we shared that beautifully with, with our audience about Clay kind of going, why didn't I think of that question? And then going, you know, excavating to go, why? And what was the thought process of that person? I mentioned that it reveals that everybody sees the world through a different lens yeah. and now we have terms on that in organizations. So people have a DEI strategy, for example, but the real value of diversity is now neurodiversity. It's, it's the different people with different perspectives, different backgrounds. 
And through that, if there's anything we take out of this and, and a successful organization, is that's what we should be seeking. Maybe you have some thoughts for our audience on that. Well, the first thing would be innovation is a team sport. I may have mentioned Jeff Bezos is getting the idea for Amazon, but he didn't do it alone. And, and from idea, getting a spark of an idea even to making it happen is multiple people with multiple skills being able to pull that off. So the very front end of, of me trying to get an idea that's going to be valuable, a new product, a new service, you know, a new process, whatever. Um, the very front end of that is a heavy reliance on these discovery skills. And so imagine filling out a survey. We, we actually, we took these interviews that led to these five skills, then created a survey assessment. We've collected 20,000 plus data points around the world now. We know that basically if we use these skills, we will statistically have a higher probability of getting valuable new product, process, service, business model, new business ideas that are valuable, period. And so it's not that, and we know that using these skills is not, it is not primarily in a genetic inheritance. It's a choice. It's a daily choice about how we find and solve problems. So if we use these, we could actually find and solve problems moving forward. That's the first part. The second part becomes, as we're discovering those new ideas, think of these kind of assessment questions like, you know, I regularly ask questions that challenge the status quo. I regularly get out and observe customers using our products and services, just watching them. I regularly talk to people outside of my normal circle of conversation in order to get a new perspective on an issue I'm trying to figure out. I regularly experiment and try small, fast, cheap experiments to move things forward. I regularly take the time to step back and connect the unconnected. How might this supplier visit and the data and surprising information there help me with that big challenge we're working on? making those connections. Those are some of the questions basically in the survey assessment. Now, what's really interesting in that is the following, is that most people, when they take the assessment, wish they could take it a second time. Because by the time they get through, they realize, oh, that's what we're really trying to figure out here. Many of the people doing a 360 assessment of someone else it's, it's a real mixed bag because how do I know if you're asking questions to establish the challenge the status quo? How do I know if you're out there observing customers using the products and services? How do I know if you're networking and talking with people who aren't like us to get new ideas and perspectives? And the, the problem in, this, in the assessment part is we don't normally assess these skills. We don't pay attention to them. We don't measure them. And like, duh, management 101, don't measurement, don't measure it, doesn't happen. Well, that's what's going on here. And so most of these people at that front end in the discovery phase who are using these skills to get ideas that are valuable, they're using skills that nobody sees because they don't value them. But they're necessary, they're relevant, they're crucial. Now, Let's say we've used those skills, then it becomes an issue of how do we get it done? That's other stuff. That's influencing people, paying attention to the details. That's planning, that's breaking down, that's organizing, that's all those execution delivery sort of skills that complement the discovery set. And so you mentioned neurodiversity. In this case, it's like discovery, delivery, innovation, execution, diversity of skill set. Being in that team and in different quantities at different stages. You know, think of an S curve. Show that on the screen because this is a great curve from the book. Early on, I'm going to be looking at my diversity in my team in part. How diverse are we on discovery delivery? And early on, it should be more discovery than delivery skill set. As we're starting to move up that curve, then it becomes more balanced. As we get to that point of we're actually executing now. 
it becomes more delivery execution skill than, disco than discovery. And that sounds so obvious when we talk about it, but it's non-obvious enough that, honestly, most leaders never ask those questions. But it has a big, big influence on our ability to move through that process of ideation to implementation. And this curve on the screen is also so important when you're joining a company. I, I often think about that and it's like, oh, I'm joining X company as head of innovation. You're kind of going, what stage of growth are they at? Oh, yeah. That changes everything. Or I'm joining this company, where are they? Because if they're at the top of the S curve and you're going in as head of innovation, that's going to be a battle. Yeah. You've got to ask different questions in the interview process. Mm -hmm. it, it changes everything. Oh, totally. And so for me, if I, were, if I were being recruited by a company or being interested in a company, I'd be asking questions like, number one, how do their senior leaders find and solve challenges? Do they use these discovery skills? Are they actively fighting and solving challenges? What's the time horizon on those challenges? Is it just short term or is it long term? So that's sort of the starting point on that. So part of it's around that, that how do they find and solve challenges? Um, the other part becomes, what kind of leader do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> and the reason I ask that question is the following. So when I teach, you know, in longer term degree programs where I'm with students for a longer period of time, and sometimes even in short two day sort of executive education programs, when I'm teaching this innovator ZNA work, Inevitably, it kind of hits that point of where people realize, oh man, if I do what you're asking me to do, I don't think the place is going to reward that. In fact, I might get punished for it. And in fact, this is going to be a really hard, long slog. And I'm not sure I want to do that because I only have so much time in the day and boy, this is going to take a different way of approaching my work. And in their mind, dangerous way. So that's the point in which I say, okay, let's pretend you don't. Let's fast forward five or 10 years. What kind of leader will you be when you grow up? And if the answer to that question is like, you want to be like the existing leaders in the organization you're part of, or you're thinking of joining, cool. But if, if there's some incongruence there, like actually I don't want to be like them five or 10 years from now, then it is now decision time. Because either in this organization you're a part of or switching to a different organization, you are going to have to learn these skills. And by doing that, you will become different. I think that's one of the things that people challenge are challenged by is, I, I just want the job. I don't want, I, and you're kind of going, yeah, but you're just kicking the can down the road because you get in the door, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to sap your own personal energy or life force. Yeah, yeah. It's going to affect you massively. Like we don't, one thing I learned about Clay, mm -hmm. if anything, was his persistence and his doggedness and, and his attention to detail. Uh, Joe Barrow was saying that he'd never met a student like him who just absolutely sifted through the data. Mm -hmm. And he deserved all the accolades because he did the work. He, he really work. did the work. And yeah. it's one of the things that uh, it's, it's as it was really McGrath said recently on, on this series, you want to be in Thoughtland because it's great. You know, it's like it's, nothing's real and we can all fly and everything. But innovation is about doing the work and, yeah. and it's about having the lenses and showing up, as you said, it's a discipline. It really, really is a discipline. And I think if you understand that and you couple it with these skills, then great things can happen. Mm -hmm. I, I have a quote that I pulled from the end of this book, but I thought I'd share it. It's your words on clay. And then I was going to throw it to you to close today's show and, mm -hmm. and, uh, as a way of recognizing your, your great friend. So you wrote, almost 10 years ago, I first met Clay Christensen. This was at the time of writing, of course. I still remember the conversation as though it was yesterday. 
we talked in depth about the transforming power of questions in our lives, at home and at work. It was a dialogue steeped with insight and a bit of a precursor to the disruptive questions in a good way that Clay would come to pose throughout the project. His passion for theory and his capacity for building good theory left indelible marks on the innovator's DNA. No wonder he's the author of Disruptive Innovation. Most of all, I express gratitude to Clay that during his own physical challenges, he still found the time to supply energy, giving support and insight into my own family's ups and downs. And that probably brings you back to the challenges that you had experienced at the time. You've essentially said these things as well throughout mm. today. They were infused in the conversation and, and he's met, left a massive mark on you. And I want to just also mention the question is, questions are the answer, which is a forthcoming show that we'll do because that really was a, a mark, a question mark he left in your life. So how about you to close today's show? Well, we're going we're gonna to now sit at the fireplace for a minute. Yes, okay. Yes. Um, initially, the research and work that I did for the questions or the answer book after the Innovator's DNA was actually with Clay. Because in the early 90s, as I mentioned, you know, we both knew then questions really mattered. Um, and we both knew that the world is full of dark and difficulty and that questions could be the light that could open up some new avenues and new opportunities to just better lives for a lot of people. So as I think about what you just read that I'd written and reflect on Clay, there's, there's this, there's a legacy of Clay that started long before Clay, part of which was his mother and grandmother. His grandmother raised their children on a farm, wheat farm, and when the neighbors came to see the wheat, they noticed that her garden vegetables were in a zigzaggedy crooked row. And like, why are you doing that? And her response was, because everybody else does it straight line. <laughs> so he learned from grandparents and parents that taking that straight line like everybody else does is not necessarily the best line. And then at one point when he was 15, he didn't read novels and his mother loves them. And he asked, why would I ever want to read a novel? And his mother said, because novels distill down into a confined space, multiple lives and challenges, and you can learn more from a novel than you can from real life. An interesting way of looking at it. And, and I think of the case study method and Clay going deep and then writing these case studies was effectively doing what his mother had suggested around, let's create a novel story here that encapsulates a, encapsulates a lot of people's experiences to hopefully spark some new insights. So then it's a conversation that a person would have with Clay. Could be you, could be me, could be personal, could be professional. You've got Clay coming into that space with Number one, deep curiosity about you, your world. Who are you? What are you wrestling with? How are you doing? What's going on? And then it's that how can I help notion over and over and over. I mean, I'll never forget the calls that I would get from Clay. We lived in France at one point earlier. And Clay called me and he said, you know, there's this guy I know who's traveling through Paris at Charles de Gaulle Airport, and there's an issue that I'd really like you to talk with him about, because I think it's a challenge that you could help on. Would you mind going to the airport and meeting him when he transits through? Or Clay, one of his many health encounters later in life, hey, one of his one of his um, other, the other patient in a joint room, <laughs> he had gotten to know so well. This guy, this person was um, 
had worked in the construction industry and had some challenges and got to know his family. And so here's Clay, you know, global management icon, using all of those innovation skills that he has in such great ability to learn about this construction worker in the room. But then Clay only has so much time and talent and energy, and he like calls me because I live in the same community area. And he's just like, how would you mind touching base with this guy and sort of reaching out and being a resource to him? But that's how he did it. It's like, not only was I going to, not only would he do that with you, he would invite you, if you were close enough to him, to do it with others in those examples like I just described. And so it's no wonder to me that when, he, when Clay would sit down with the CEO of Chanel or with Andy Grove at Intel, that the conversation would dance into personal domain if they let it, because he cared about it. But he also cared about this, this discipline of management, because what you're doing is influencing so many other people. And, and that, to me, is, I think, why Clay joined Jeff and me on this book, The Innovator's DNA, in part, because he wanted to learn a little more about the who part of these incredible disruptive innovators. How did they actually go about doing it so that other people could do it? You know, there's, when you think of his book, How Do You Measure Your Life? Clay knew from his own life experience that little things done well over a long period of time would compound, they would aggregate into something beautiful and spectacular. And I think what he was doing as he maneuvered through life, no matter whom it was with, would, he was trying to figure out what might the little things be in your world that if you attended to them better, could compound into something powerful and beautiful and magnificent. And he had that sense of companies being able to move into that space, but even more importantly, individuals. And it was like, what might I do here in this moment that could magnify your light, could magnify your goodness, could, could somehow spark some element of who you are and what you are um, to engage more deeply with the world, to ask the most challenging questions you could possibly imagine of yourself first and foremost, and then of others in the world around you, and then do something about it. Because that's just what he did over and over and over. What a beautiful way to wrap it up, pal. I think it leaves us all thinking about that for our own lives. How will we measure our lives? What are the small things that we can do every single day? And I want to thank you for doing a big thing and coming here. And it's obvious to me now why, why it means so much to you and to so many others who've reached out as well for joining us here in Dublin and Dublin St. Stephen's Green, the iconic offices, author of The Innovator's DNA, along with Jeff Dyer and the late Clayton Christensen, Hal Gregerson, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Can I add one more thing? Sure. Um, it's, um, When we were talking out before, you mentioned something about, it was something to the effect of Clay had 
either somebody before had mentioned or Clay had said, like, what is his interview with his maker going to be like? What, yes. was, what was that comment? So with M Michael Horn, Michael uh, Horn. We, we talked about this and Clay was worried about his final interview with the big man yeah, yeah. upstairs and what, what that would be like. And he, in some ways, my, me and Michael were saying, you're good, buddy. <laughs> you're good. You're good. And I was saying, St. Peter of the Gate would be like, hey, tall guy, Christensen, you're good. Top of the queue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So, because I've been thinking about that, the story that you've told me, and you've reiterated it here. Um, he and I hold a common faith, and, and, and what I'm going to say doesn't require that, because we were talking about um, Jesus Christ and how inquisitive he was. And whether you, you may not have heard, but, but there's this group that has created this incredible video series called The Chosen about the life of Jesus Christ. And they've done a good job of historically making it accurate. And what I realized in watching that is that making for those who would believe Jesus Christ to be only a God, making that person human in everyday life, like realizing that this person, even if you don't believe in his deity, he also got very tired and he had to rejuvenate. And there were things that it just made it very, very real. Well, one of those real things about Jesus Christ is in the recorded statements, which whether you believe they're true or not, the recorded statements are about one out of nine statements were questions. And if you read those questions, they're really tough questions. They're simple, they're short, they're tough. Like, you know, who do you think I am? It's an interesting question. It's like, <laughs> it's like me asking you, Aiden, who do you think I am? Because your answer to that would tell me a lot about me and you. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not focused on that specific sort of moment. But, but what I'm getting at here is that I think Clay, Clay realized that whether it's Jesus Christ or Muhammad or Buddha, they all asked really tough questions. That's the point. And, and they were asking questions about things that really mattered to cause us to stop in our tracks and think twice about what we're doing. And what I, what I love about Clay's life is that he stopped himself over and over and over in his tracks to think about what am I doing and why? And what's a better way? What questions could I be asking and posing that would enable my life and others' lives to be better for it. And the pace of most leaders, of CEOs, is so frantic. You know, you mentioned earlier the, the CEO sitting back and just reflecting. The average time spent on an average activity for an average CEO is like eight minutes per activity. We think they have the time to sit and reflect and, you know, whatever, but... The, the, the role itself doesn't create that space. And so it's being more clay-like in the sense of having, having a deeper commitment to something bigger than yourself that requires you every day to wake up and wonder what's new, what's different, how else might we approach this thing is a very different way of engaging with the world. And what I think Clay and Jeff and I realized in doing the work around the Innovators DNA was, that's how these really exceptional leaders also do their work. It's just how they show up. Hmm. I wonder sometimes. Um, and, and I can respect Clay's um, humble hesitancy about meeting his maker and wondering what those final questions are. I can, I can understand that. 
But what I think is so amazing about Clay is that he spent so much of his life trying to frame and reframe the questions he was living in a way that would create a better life for him and for those around him. That I think that's part of why um, Michael Horn and others from the outside would think, like, why are you even worried, Clay? To me, that's the explanation on that, is that he doesn't need to worry because he was so conscious about the questions he was living um, and working so hard to make them better by engaging with the world so actively and vulnerably to sometimes get knocked off his high horse and figure out, well, there's got to be a better way here. You know, that's a life worth living. And, and I think that's why so many people have still admire and respect and honor his legacy.